0: This is the Global Crossroads Podcast. Each episode will bring you stories about global issues such as climate change, violence against women, fundamentalism, migration, and the rise of right-wing populism. The show is hosted by Chrissy Stroop, Deidre Sugiuchi, and myself, Deepak Singh.
1: Welcome to episode five of global... Shit, sorry, I wanted to say global podcast and I... Okay. (laughs) Okay, okay, Uh, here I go again. Welcome to episode five of Global Crossroads. This is Chrissy Stroop
0: calling in from Portland, Oregon. This is Deepak calling in from Tampa, Florida.
2: And this is Deirdre Sugiuchi calling in from Athens, Georgia, We are thrilled today to have Anjali Angetti, who's an Atlanta-based, award-winning writer, teacher, as well as the vice president of the National Book Critics Circle. Um, She was named one of the nine essayists of color that you should know about by Electric Literature. She primarily writes about politics, social change, immigration, books, and culture. Her political column appears in Zora Magazine, and her collection of essays about identity is forthcoming from UGA Press. Anjali, so happy to have you. Welcome.
3: Thank you. you. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh,
1: Yeah, we're all really happy to have you here today, and uh, perhaps we could just start things off by asking you to tell us a little bit about your own story and uh, how you came to be doing the kind of work that you're doing now.
3: Um, Absolutely. Um, So I think a lot of my own story, not surprisingly, is tied to identity and trying to figure out my identity. Um, I am mixed race. My father is an Indian immigrant. My mother is half Puerto Rican and half Austrian. And um, when I was growing up, um, I was in a predominantly white community, um, predominantly non-immigrant community. And... um, and being sort of one of the only people like me was sort of um it it really shaped who i was in trying to find out who i was and trying to find a community of people like me um so i think my activism is very much tied to those early yearnings i had as a child to um find allies um to find people who sort of understood what I was experiencing and what i was uh what i was what I was wanting to understand about myself about my place in the world um so um so yeah i mean i um I'm brown that's another identity I have i'm brown skinned and um so I experienced a fair amount of racism when I was growing up, um, and xenophobia as well. Um, Even today, and sadly this hasn't changed, um, skin color is often what people consider um, when they're trying to figure out who belongs in the United States, right? We have an entire administration Mm -hmm. that seems to think that brown and black skin means someone is not a US citizen. It means that they're foreign. It means that they are um, not really part of the fabric of the United States of America. So um, sort of dealing with racism and dealing with xenophobia and then not being 100% um, Indian or Puerto Rican or Austrian and searching for communities that I felt that I could be a part of. Um, was sort of something that led me to eventually becoming um, an activist. So I met
2: you as an activist. Mm-hmm. Can you? We uh, were we were in DC, and you had. Did you start that movement to get everyone to write letters? Was that was that you? I, I found about it on Facebook. Can you describe how I met you, and then just describe absolutely. like absolutely yeah how how that shaped you and how you know your formative experiences and how that shaped you in becoming an activist. So um,
3: it's interesting because I've been doing activist work since I was a teenager, but it was, it was divorced from democratic politics and politics in general. So um, yeah, I was very active in the summer of 1994, trying to get the Violence Against Women Act passed. Um, in what was then called welfare rights, in abortion rights in immigration rights, discrimination, um, that sort of thing. But I did that in an arena that was away from politics for the most part by working for these sort of grassroots groups and organizations. It wasn't until the presidential election in 2016 where I realized that I needed to reconsider how I was being an activist. And this was just for me personally. I mean, everybody's journey is different and everybody's journey is, you know, can be effective, but I started feeling like I wasn't doing enough. Um, so, when I, so what happened was Trump was elected, AWP was taking place like three, four weeks after the inauguration, and I decided I wasn't gonna go to AWP. I, I just had no desire to go to a large writing conference in Washington DC right after Trump's inauguration, just no desire. And then I started hearing online of people talking about organizing to lobby their members of Congress. And then I thought, you know what? This will be the reason that I go to DC. I'll stop by the conference, but since I already have a hotel and I already have a plane ticket, this will be my purpose. So, um, that's when I started talking about it on Facebook. I organized the Facebook group and then I started pulling writers in who were like, wow, let's do this. Um, but it was a, so, so our plan was to go set up a meeting with senators, Isaacson and Purdue. Um, After it took, it took quite a while. It took several weeks of communication with their offices before they even responded to us. And then, when they did, they said, "We'll let you meet with a staffer from each senator in a single conference room at the same time." But it was a friend of mine, a local book publicist in Atlanta named Allison Law, who said, um, "Who introduced the idea of?" uh, Well, we we talked about getting letters from our friends. Um, And bringing them with us. But Allison Law is the one who said, why don't we use a P.O. box in Atlanta? Have people who we don't know mail letters to the P.O. box and then someone can pick them up on the way to uh, the airport in Atlanta to fly to D.C. So we had been gathering letters from people we knew, but then we, Allison is the one who had the idea about the P.O. box. So, you know, we were, we were what, Deirdre, we were like 25, 30 people in that room with Sen- Senators mm-hmm. Isaac, Isaacson and Purdue's staff people, mm-hmm. and we, you know, we had an agenda. We had a list of issues we wanted to cover, and we took all the letters. I mean, there was something like 700 handwritten letters from people, and we had them divided into subject matters, so one would be about, you know, the Muslim ban, one would be about health care. So that they could go to the corresponding legal aid in those offices who was working on those issues. Um, But yeah, I mean, it became, you know, I, I had the idea, but it took, you know, all of us to really make it happen, make it translate into action that would allow us to bring as many voices of Georgians to the Senate offices to make sure that they were heard.
1: Uh, Could you give us some more details about um, your observations and reporting on voting irregularities, the type of voter suppression uh, that you've observed, the kind of people that you've talked to, who have experienced it, and maybe sort of bring us up to date on on what's going on in Georgia relative to uh, the lawsuits about the voting system?
3: Gosh, that's such a big question. So I I suppose if I'm going to start somewhere— I would start with the Supreme Court decision in Shelby County v. Holder, which basically was a decision to decide that states that had a history of racialized voter suppression no longer had racialized voter suppression. Which means the pre-clearance requirement, which w- which required these states before changing any laws about voting, to be cleared by the U.S. Department of Justice that preclearance requirement vanished, which means that states like Georgia, who had a history of voter suppression, could do whatever they wanted to loss with respect to voting. And Georgia and Alabama, um, that's when they started, that's when they just went wild. In, in some of these states, it meant having these really harsh voter ID uh, programs, right? Where even if you receive, um, Public housing, and you have an ID card to show that you receive public housing. That ID card didn't count for a voter ID in the state of Alabama. So we have some. So, so Shelby County beholder really sort of let things loose. So in in Georgia too, that that also meant you know uh, exact match um, laws. So uh, if your name on your photo, uh, your photo voter ID doesn't match exactly with the name in the poll books they have. They tell you you can't vote. And for people who do not have their name in a typical Romanization form, where there's a first name, a a middle name, and a last name, this was a problem because some people have four names, some people have five names, some people have hyphenated names, some people have a name that they go by, but it's not their legal name. So a lot of voters were being turned away for this. Um, You know, we had these these purges, these ridiculous purges uh, of people who supposedly moved and supposedly died. And yes, that was the case in some circumstances. But it was more the case that they were unjustly purged from the rolls. Um, So so Shelby County v. Holder really ramped up voter suppression in a state like Georgia. It's not like they never had it. It's just that this is when it really uh, went ballistic. What also happened after the 2000 Supreme Court case um, Bush v. Gore was that the sort of hanging chads of the ballots in uh, Florida caused a um, sort of bizarre uh, reaction, which was let's make electronic voting machines part of our election system so we don't have a hanging chad ever again.
1: Of course, there's there's also a lot of evidence of uh, people being given provisional ballots that they shouldn't have been, then those provisional ballots not being counted, provisional ballots uh, disappearing, people randomly seemingly being assigned to new uh, new poll places that they uh,
3: absolutely. Uh, I mean, um, part of this has to do with poll workers not being at. Uh, accurately trained and adequately trained, but yes, people showed up at polling places at the same precinct locations that they had voted for years and were told this isn't where you vote. Now, keep in mind in many of these uh, precincts, this happened in, you know, heavily minority voter precincts and people, voters had already been waiting in line for three or four hours. So what poll workers did was they said, oh, here's a provisional ballot. Now, when you are given a provisional ballot in Georgia, you're supposed to also be given a list of instructions and in how to correct that provisional ballot, meaning you have to show up within a few days um, at your election office and correct, bring whatever you needed um, to vote, like usually a, a, a voter ID uh, that showed you know what, where you were supposed to be voting and vote on the ballot. So um, a lot of people at one particular precinct location in Gwinnett County... Um, weren't told, they were just handed the paper, and they weren't told that they actually needed to take direct action in order to cure that ballot so that their vote was counted. Um, at one point they ran out of instructions for provisional ballots, so they weren't even be- giving them out. Um, and when volunteers who were waiting well outside of the precinct were trying to help voters find their correct precinct for where they could vote and help explain how to correct their provisional ballots, they were shooed away by the poll workers. Um, so, um, so yeah, I mean, little, little things like that. Um, there were also so many situations where there were limited English proficiency speakers who came to vote um, who asked to have a translator and asked to bring a translator in. And they were told that they couldn't, um, which also just wasn't true. Um, so we had so many irregularities in Georgia. Um, it, it's, just, uh, it's just astounding to me that the races ended up being as close as they were. Had we not had so much voter suppression, I mean, Stacey Abrams would have won by a landslide. Um, it's just that the voter suppression—the voter suppression was rampant. It was everywhere, and it was almost impossible to to
2: stem the flow. I mean, I, I, I wear my Stacey Abrams hat every day because she really is the true governor she of is. Georgia. So, she yeah. Is. I, so, I mean, but I mean. My concern, though, is so this is happening in Georgia, and then I just heard in Mississippi they had a thing where the machines were flipping ballots. Like, what can we? What are the implications nationally? I mean, and and what can we do to ensure election security in 2020?
3: So, uh, there are a few things. Um, you know, national implications obviously are huge because if you've got 12, 14 states that have insecure elections and to, you know, that enjoy suppressing their minority voters. You know, that's enough to change the presidency, right? Those are a lot of electoral votes and those are a lot of possibilities where, you know, you can't flip a a Senate or a house or keep keep the house flipped um, without those states uh, having their right to vote. Um, But, wait, what was your second question, Deirdre? I just forgot it. Uh... what What? can we do what can we do here's what we can do some in some states including georgia um election county boards and county commissioners are legally allowed to make the decision for their county to vote on handmade marked paper ballots you can start going to those meetings and in fact i think everybody should look up when their election when their state election board meets and when their county election board meets and start showing up at those meetings that's happened all over in Georgia, people are filling those rooms and making it known that they want election security to be a priority, that they don't want these, um, insecure electronic voting machines. People are showing up at federal court, um, filling the courtroom when a judge is deciding an election case.
2: Can we just talk just a little bit though at, I mean, I guess this would be like the last, if it's cool, just about um, suppression and tactics against people of color? Sure. I I mean, um,
3: so historically, um, voter suppression has changed over time. You know, I think when we think of voter suppression, from the 1960 Civil Rights Movement, we have in our minds and in our textbooks um, images of violence, images of police arrests, images of um, people being beaten, um, people being screamed at. And by people, of course, I mean African-Americans. We have visuals. The optics of voter suppression are. Easier to take in when we're talking about pre-civil rights and the civil rights movement. Today, certainly, there have been very uh, there have been a lot of outrageous events of voter suppression. Right? I mean, we had the one incident in South Georgia where a bus that was chartered by Black Voters Matter was um, going to drive senior citizens from a community center to their polling place to vote. That bus was stopped. It wasn't allowed to go take the senior citizens to vote. Um, Some of this was on film. Um, So we see events like that that are recorded, that are outrageous, that offend us. But a lot of voter suppression in all communities and especially in minority communities where it's far more common, isn't so, um, doesn't have the sort of visual heft that we expect it to. Um, turning away someone from a poll is often quiet and, you know, voters can be gaslighted, right? Oh, you didn't bring this or, you know, your photo ID isn't correct when maybe your photo ID is correct. Um, oh, this isn't your polling place. Oh, but, uh, you know, and then a voter might say, oh, but it is, I've always voted for, no, no, you've got to go somewhere else and send them to another place, which is the wrong polling place. Um counties will have their meetings behind closed doors when they decide to close a polling place in a predominantly African-American community. Um, So a lot of voter suppression is, it's just as violent, it's just as dangerous, it's just as oppressive, but visually it's quieter, it's more subtle. And this is what's so tricky when it comes to voter suppression today, um and 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 i think when it comes to 2020 it will be the very quiet act of not sending someone an absentee ballot who's waiting for it in you know washington dc um and and emailing furiously asking for the ballot asking for the ballot and then just not getting it um it will be uh people being told who are waiting in line at seven o'clock when polls typically close um you, you can't vote we're closing. And those people not understanding their rights um i believe the big battle for 2020 will be more voters understanding their their voting rights
0: hi anjali so this is a good segue for me to ask you um question about um the book that you have yes by bharti Mukherjee, the writer and the especially you keep it for the for the cover for the brown person's face on it what's what is the significance of it i mean you've already talked in the article you wrote for Paris Review, but I want to hear again here, what what why is it so dear to you and what does it mean to you?
3: Um, absolutely, so I have family in India who mm. I used to visit frequently when I was growing up, but I had never seen um, a photo, especially a photograph of a brown person, let alone, uh, you know, of an Indian person, let alone a brown person, on the cover of a book ever
0: in the U.S.
3: Um, now, I, did, I didn't grow up in New York City or San Francisco or cities that might have had um, lots of independent bookstores, um, You know, where there were bookstores that maybe brought in um, a much more diverse array of books. My bookstores were basically Walden Books, And the library closest to me where I lived in Chattanooga was very, very small. Um, So Mm -hmm. I did not have a diversity of literature that other people would have had. So it wasn't until um, I was in my early 20s and I was in a bookstore in St. Louis, Missouri, a very, very large bookstore, which sadly um, isn't there anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, I... I went with a friend and I was just looking through the fiction, just running my fingers along the bindings of the books that were on the shelves. And um, I saw the name of the author, Bharati Mukherjee, and I pulled it out. And there was not only a photo of an Indian woman on the cover, but it was actually a photograph of an Indian woman on the cover. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was very, you know, it was very realistic. And I didn't know until that moment that I had been longing for that. I didn't feel until that moment that I had been missing a whole lot in my life. To me, you know, English literature, literature from Europe, um, literature by white authors, especially white male authors. I mean, I just Mm -hmm. assumed that that was the best literature. That's what I'd been taught in school. Um, that's what people around me had told me. That's what people used to buy me for books. So I, it just really, the cover just opened up my eyes to stories being told by and about people who shared uh, part of my identity with me. Um, and then I just, I went to town after I read that book. I read all the rest of her books that were then published. I discovered other South Asian authors. Um, and began reading them, and, um, and seeing, I mean, seeing South Asians in literature living in the United States was just, it was just eye-opening for me. Um, and it, it, it helped me to envision myself in the United States. It helped me to see myself more.
1: I have a little story about Varati uh, Mukherjee. Wow. Nice. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> I, I was assigned in um, one of my honors college classes at Ball State University, uh, Beholder of the World. And then oh, wow. um, there was some event where she was brought in to speak on campus, which was, which was pretty cool. And because I was uh, very active in the Honors College Student Honors Council and that sort of thing, I um, got to drive her to the airport. Uh, so, anyway, please well, continue. <laughs> of sad story about my essay is that
3: initially I was going to be interviewing Bharati Mukherjee. I, um, I felt like in general she was such a force in not just the immigrant canon, but just the, the, the canon of literature in the U.S. And I was going to be writing um, an, uh, an interview ab- uh, with her for a different publication. And we exchanged a few emails and I, I got to tell her you know, the kind of impact that she made on my life and how part of the reason why I think I ended up being a writer has to do with me picking up one of her books. And um, sadly, she stopped responding to my emails and then a few months later she passed away. Wow. Um, but um, when I wrote that essay, I did have a lovely conversation with her husband, Clark, about mm-hmm. how much her work meant to me and a lot of people with um, in the Indian diaspora and the South Asian diaspora in the United States. Um, but yeah, sadly, I didn't get to interview her. But um, But I do feel strongly that even though she's well known, I feel like she's, not at the upper echelon that she should be in U.S. literature. She is really one of the best. Right. Um, And I I wish she'd had more recognition when she was still alive.
0: So do you still have that book with you?
3: I do. I still have the book as well as, um, you know, all of her other books. I I do. I I keep it in a special bookshelf of, of treasured books and I, and I think about it often and even though Jasmine, I mean, you know, Bharathi was writing in the seventies and the eighties. Um, it's it's amazing how timely her stories are, her characters. It's 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 as if it was written today. She, she really had that skill as a writer.
0: True. I mean, yeah. It's also kind of sad that sad that things haven't changed since then, you know.
3: Exactly. <laughs> it is kind of sad. You know but her characters were always so fearless in the face of xenophobia in the face of social conventions that they felt restricted them her characters just really they broke out of that so totally. um so yeah they're totally. great role models i think mm-hmm. thank you
2: i mean i don't know do you think that has changed like like um, the whiteness of literature and the whiteness of education? Uh, You know, as a parent, do you think that has changed?
3: You know, I think it's absolutely changing. Um, I feel like what kids learn in school and what they read in school isn't changing that much. Um, You know, you do have James Baldwin and Toni Morrison, but of course I also had them once in a while on a syllabus. So I feel like what's being taught in schools isn't changing very quickly. Um, But I do feel like, especially when it comes to children's and young adult literature, which I kind of feel like is changing faster for the better um, than adult literature, I do feel like it's starting to change. Um, But but I think there's still such a risk for authors, especially, uh, you know, all marginalized authors, but also authors of color to be you know, pigeonholed in what they write, um, to to feel like they have to send, uh, write a certain kind of story to get their book published, um, to have it widely read. Um, and, you know, I think there's only so many of us that are allowed to tell certain types of stories uh, before a publisher really says, oh yeah, you know, we've already got one of those being published this year. So I still think we have those problems but it is a relief to me that now I can, you know, pick up a book, you know, that resembles um, uh, one of my children. Um, you know, um, I, I, I have a my youngest daughter is um, 10 years old and um, we I purchased for her um, the uh, books of the Kieran Mala series um which is about this kind of like a demon slayer and um first thing she said when i when i handed her the book was like oh this girl looks like me um hmm. you know and to just to just have just to to hear a child say that and to recognize what that means um you know i mean it's 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 Amazing! It's it's uh, it's it's it's, a, it's something that I didn't have myself.
1: So, is this a good place to um, conclude? Sure. Uh, well, thank you so much, Anjali, for joining us on the show today. Um, it's really sobering stuff that we've been talking about, but it's been great to have you.
3: Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor.
0: Thank you so much, Anjali.
3: Yeah. Thank you so much.
2: Yes. We're looking forward to your book and and um, next year too.
3: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you all for joining us on Global Crossroads today. Um, You can find us online. Uh, The Global Crossroads podcast itself has a, um, a Twitter page. It's at Crossroads underscore pod. So if you like the podcast, please follow us there. Uh, If you want to support the podcast, we also have a Patreon uh, that uh, we would greatly appreciate you funding this project as we put a lot of effort into it. Uh, You can find me, Chrissy Stroop, on Twitter at um, C underscore Stroop, S-T-R-O-O-P. And my website featuring my blog called Not Your Mission Field is at cstroop.com. And uh, remember, too, that we welcome listener feedback and questions. If you want to ask a question to any of us hosts here or to our guests, uh, you can add us on Twitter and you can also use the hashtag Ask Global Crossroads.
0: Global Crossroads podcast is now available on iTunes. Please subscribe and review. Thank you for tuning in.